by the Holy Spirit, we find that, in fact, God's glory is most revealed in the fact that I come to Scripture and I really say, I hate God. I don't want a loving God. I don't want a peaceful God. I don't want a God that reconciles my enemy. The Bible as Literature, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. everybody to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. I am Lauren Rosser and I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Good evening. And Michael Harden. Hello. The topic we wanted to talk about tonight, we're continuing on the theme of talking about the Bible. And uh, the last two have been really fascinating topics. And, and now we, we're going to talk about another aspect of Scripture that I think is really interesting when it comes to the Bible. Because um, we want to talk about the Bible as literature. And the thing I find really fascinating is when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, we actually, in my English class, and this was after prayer was like not allowed in school, and this was in liberal California, um, we actually, a teacher actually asked us if we had a Bible to bring it to school, and we actually studied the 23rd Psalm as literature, not as a religious writing or anything like that. And and I thought that was really cool because it was, um, it kind of goes along with what they're talking about tonight, of how just from a literary standpoint even, the Bible is a truly fascinating book. That, that even the California public school system recognized that this is something worth taking a look at. And I thought that was pretty cool. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and open up because I'm not sure exactly what direction we're going to go as far as the Bible being literature, because this is an area that uh, I, I'm not an English major like my daughter. <laughs> so this is an area that is uh, kind of out, well, very much outside any realm of expertise that I have. Uh, so uh, I want to go ahead and open up. And Michael, I know you were the one who had suggested this topic and so i wanted to start out let's get your thoughts on what do you mean by the bible as literature okay so prior to the 17th century uh there was only one way of viewing scripture and that was as holy literature uh from the apostles and the prophets that bore witness to god's salvation history but um, beginning in the late 1600s and through the 1700s, and then especially kind of blossoming uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, a particular way of viewing scripture began to emerge first in the universities, and then that would infect the, the churches through the, you know, the training of pastors done at universities. And this was um, viewing the Bible as literature, and the method that, that was used was known as the historical critical method. And what this viewpoint did not assume was anything that the church took for granted. For example, uh, the church said that the Apostle John wrote the fourth gospel and the letters and the book of Revelation. Um, 
those that treated the Bible's literature did not take that at face value and ask the question, is this true? Uh, later, there would be those that would begin looking at the Pauline epistles and asking, did Paul really write all these letters? And at the same time, there began in the 1800s the quest for the historical Jesus. And the first big German quest failed, and Albert Schweitzer, in his very famous book, um, uh, the English title is The Quest of the Historical Jesus, uh, and pretty much laid that to rest. And then in the 20th century, um, scholars, uh, because, because there was kind of a renaissance in uh, classical studies in England uh, it, in the uh, 19th and, and early 20th centuries. And this translated over into an awful lot of New Testament scholars who were very, very familiar with Greco-Roman literature. And then there were also scholars emerging that were very familiar with ancient Near Eastern literature. And this produced kind of a new approach to scripture as we began to recognize that why there were different genres or types of scriptures. Torah was different than prophets, and the prophets were not the Psalms, and songs were not Proverbs, and, you know, that, that, that Gospels, you know, were they a unique form of literature, or, or are they similar to ancient Greco-Roman biographies? And uh, the Pauline letters began to be compared with other letters in the ancient world. And we began to see that the certain structures of the Pauline letters followed familiar patterns to people. And, of course, we, we had a renaissance in um, uh, apocalyptic uh, as, a, as a way of understanding uh, things. And, and so the apocalyptic scholars came on board and were reviewing literature from Judaism, um, uh, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Pseudepigrapha, and they began just saying, you know, when we come to the Bible, we have this literature um, that's that's now kind of becoming familiar to us in terms of its background. So, w what is what is it doing? How does it how does it function in relation to other literature? Both similarities and differences. And then, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, departments of religion began to arise, and the Bible as literature began to be taught uh, in the universities using the historical critical method uh, that gave us very, very different results than that which students were learning in seminary. And so, because the seminary students were basically uh, following whatever the church tradition taught, and that gave us two very, very different and distinct outlooks on Scripture uh, that today have created a battlefield in American Christianity. Is the Bible God's Word, or is it just literature? And then the real question we have to ask is, are we just stuck with these alternatives, or is there a third way to, to, do, to view this that is able to view the Scripture as literature and also hear God's Word?
Fascinating. Um, because, yeah, I like how you were saying when, when they were, um, when people first started looking at scripture's literature, they started asking questions like uh, things exactly like I always took at face value, like John wrote John, John wrote Revelation, John wrote the letters, you know, that John wrote. And, and it wasn't until I encountered encountered you, actually, that, that I first heard uh, the gospel of John being referred to as the fourth gospel. <laughs> and, then, and then it was shortly after that I started hearing um, uh, different, I heard it from some other people first and then heard you um, echo it as well, where other people talking about some of Paul's letters not actually being written by Paul. And and it's it's interesting how for some Christians, that's like sacrilege, you know, <laughs> almost to bring that it up. It, it, it is. Because their theory of inspiration requires them to say, if the text says, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that means Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, wrote it. They don't, they don't understand pseudonymous documents in the ancient world. That's all. And, and can you expand on a pseudonymous documents? What, what is that for the layman that's who doesn't a, know that? Okay, so in the ancient world, it was a very common practice to write a book in the name of somebody very famous. That's what it's, it's like having a celebrity endorsement. You know what I mean? on the back of your book cover, but but you write it in the name of. And there's an awful lot of, of pseudonymous literature uh, in early Christianity, for example. Uh, and I'm not just referring to pseudonymous literature in the New Testament, but I'm also talking in the second and third centuries where you can go read the Acts of Paul and Tecla, you know, and, and it you on the surface it looks like you're reading the book of acts kinds of stories right yeah but from a, hist a historical critical perspective when applied to both the book of acts and the paul uh, the acts of paul and tecla what we find are these very kind of different portraits of paul that have emerged in the early 2nd century and so we can begin to now start to go, okay, now what happens when we take Paul's letters and we try to place them and create a chronology in relation to the book of Acts? Well, we run into a lot of problems because Paul says he's only at Jerusalem three times, but Acts has him there five times. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so this is just one of many, 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 many problems of trying to fit the Pauline letters into this chronology that's found in the book of Acts. So these are, but these are all literary type questions. And now it, it must be said that the historical critical method by the early 1970s um, was declared bankrupt by none other than our dear friend Walter Wink in his book, The Bible and Human Transformation, whose opening line was, the historical critical method is bankrupt, and that's why Union Theological Seminary of New York City denied him tenure, you know, because they were all massive into historical, the historical critical method. But Walter was looking for that, that third way out. Um, Bart, of course, was a fierce critic of the historical critical method. He said, uh, it may be historical, but it's not critical enough. It's not critical of itself. Huh. Um, and so there was a shift in the uh, 1970s and 80s in particular towards sociology and um, 
reading scripture sociologically. We see this in the early works of of uh, Pilch and uh, Bruce Molina and uh, Richard Rohrbaugh and others, uh, eventually making its way into scholars like John Dominic Crossan and his his book on Jesus and this and that and the other. But there's also the philosophers are now coming in. So, for example, you have Paul Ricoeur uh, weighing in in his little book, Essays on Biblical Interpretation, on why these genres are important and that genres are doing different things. Torah is doing something different than the prophets are doing. The wisdom literature is doing something different than the Torah is doing, and so on and so forth. And so there's there, there this may seem overwhelming to a lay person, and I can understand it. I really, really can. After 50 years in this industry, I really can understand how overwhelming it must feel. But the fact is... Um, genre matters. You don't, a comic book is very different than a graphic novel, and a graphic novel is very different than a published novel, and that published novel can be very different from a movie. Yeah. You know, you have genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find this. I, I find the topic of genre fascinating because, um, first of all, you know, I, I, I taught audio video, and mm-hmm. and my background is in television and and uh, and video and film producing. And the thing that's interesting is a whole segment of my class was actually always spent on screenwriting and specifically on genre. And and the reason why, and this ties right into what you're talking about, and this will, might help the audiences connect to what you're saying, is that you don't write, and this is what I teach my, my students, is if you're writing a horror movie, there is a particular uh, set of way, a formula, if you will, that you follow to write that horror movie. If you're yeah. writing an action movie, there is a formula you actually follow or your audience will be disappointed. and. Right. And and it's and so what you're saying is with genre, I, if I'm connecting this right in my brain, is that you have to understand what genre you're picking up when you're reading the scripture. If you're picking up the prophets, or if you're picking up Torah, if you're picking up the Gospels, you have to know the genre you're reading, or you can completely whack out and misunderstand what you're reading. Yes, and so Second Temple Judaism was well aware of this, and so while the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms could all be referred to as scripture, they had quite different authority. Torah uh, had the most authority. (laughs) And uh, some groups accepted the authority of the prophets. And some groups accepted the authority of Torah and the prophets and the Psalter. Um, The historical books you know, uh, like the King Samuel Chronicle type books, they were relegated. They had a far lesser authority. And so already in Judaism, genre is given a, a hierarchy with Torah. And Torah is best translated as instruction, not law, but instruction. Okay. And so instruction is at the top. And then the prophets, uh, which help correct the rebellious people in in their interpretation of Torah. And then the Psalter comes along. The Psalter gives us um, something absolutely marvelous. First of all, there are five major collections within the Psalter. 
just like we have five books of the Torah. And um, each of these collections has kind of a different uh, theme with it. Um, but one of the things the Psalter gives us are, are the prayers of the people. And even though there are any number of so-called psalms with the little inscription there, written by David, written by the sons of Korah, written by this one, those are, those are, are added later, of course. And so in the Psalter, what we, we encounter is, is the, the prayers of the people. And I think what becomes important for me now is I go, okay, so what does all this mean? What's the, what's the bottom line of right. all this? The bottom line of all this is this. In Luke 24, it records that Jesus on the road to Emmaus opened up the scripture for the disciples. And the, the Greek term that's used there is he, he, herm, he was the hermeneutic interpreter. He was hermeneuting the actual text to them, right? Yeah. Uh, dehermenuing is the verb that's used there on the on the road, and it says, "And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, mm-hmm. he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." And we might go, "Oh, Jesus was going back to the Old Testament and showing these guys where he could be found in the Old Testament." No, 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 no. That's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't trying to go, hey, guys, I'm going to prove the validity of the Old Testament. That's what my whole mission was about, and I died and rose again from the dead just to prove it. No. He's dehermeneuing. He's interpreting these texts. He's showing them that the problem is the lens that they're reading the text through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we might ask, well, what exactly was he doing? Well, this is where we can go back to the Gospel of Luke. We can look at Jesus' use of of his Holy Scripture. We can see his engagement with the religious authorities of his time and where he violates their interpretation of Holy Scripture. And we can go, did Jesus have a way of reading Scripture? And the answer is yes, he did. And he was focused like a laser beam reading the text through the lens of the suffering servant of Isaiah. And Jesus would have shown the disciples that God is not to be found in this glorified Davidic warrior Messiah that they were waiting for, but rather in one who comes in lowliness to bring a message of peace and a reconciliation, but whose message is rejected. And then, like we find in so many of the Psalms, the plea, the prayer, that God would vindicate the victim. And God does. He raises Jesus from the dead. But again, unlike the victim of so much of of the Jewish scriptures who is innocent but retributive, it's like, I don't deserve this. God, you got to get them for me. Right. Comes this Joseph figure, this forgiving victim, and thus brings to completion everything that Torah is about everything the prophets are about, everything the wisdom literature about, he brings it to completion. He gives us in his life, in his teachings, in his death, in his resurrection, 
and in the sending of his spirit a way to read these texts through stereo opticon eyes that is i have two lenses on my glasses one of them is the word of god the other one of them is literature and i can read scripture at the same time through both lenses and see what it's trying to do to help transform me and the human species in, into the image of Jesus. And this is all Paul's trying to get across in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We have a veil over our eyes when we come to Scripture. We don't recognize that we have a veil that is over our eyes. But we keep trying to read Scripture and keep it so that it's full of God's glory. Right. Without learning that by the Holy Spirit we find that in fact, God's glory is most revealed in the fact that I come to Scripture and I really say, I hate God. I don't want a loving God. I don't want a peaceful God. I don't want a God that reconciles my enemy. I don't want a God that forgives my enemy. I don't want that kind of a God. I want a God like Zeus. I want a God like Mars. I want a God that's going to be on my side like the Christian God, like the Jewish God, like the Muslim God, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, um, what you're saying is really hitting home because uh, I, I was watching, uh, there, there's a movie called Till that's about Emmett Till. Yes. Um, the, yeah. And uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, he was a, a, a young uh, black boy in the, who was like 14 years old in the, uh, in 1955, who was murdered in the South, hor horrifically yes. murdered. And, um, and then they, I don't want to ruin the movie for people who haven't seen it, but it's, it's a historical thing. I mean, people who know their history right. already know it, but, but anyway, the point is that, you talk about how we pick up the scripture and we have to realize I hate God watching that movie. I was so angry and there was such vengeance in me that I was like, I want to go get all those people. I, wanna... <laughs> I was mad. And, and, and then the switch clicked on me and I went, I remembered how Jesus would be. It was in that exact situation basically um and said father forgive them for they know not what they're doing yeah and i both marveled and was frustrated because what i didn't like was it the it's easy to talk about being forgiving and being loving but it's a whole different thing when you are encountering such blatant hatred and and what you deem as somebody who deserves wrath. And and so it brought me into a conundrum and I, I ended up going for a walk in the evening and was walking the dogs and, and finally I, I could only stop and marvel at Jesus because I, I had to confess and say, Lord, I I am not you. <laughs> I I I I rage. I I want vengeance. I and and it goes right to what you're saying about the thing of I hate God. It's like I, I don't know if I could go as far as to say I, I'm growing in His love, but I sure don't like His ways a lot of times. Because for me, it was like I I want to believe in forgiveness, but that's easy to talk about. You broke my pencil, you know. 
Right. It was a whole different. It took it to a whole different level. Where you know, like it's like what you you've brought up before. You know, unless your gospel works at the gates of Auschwitz, you know, um, you, you're you don't have the gospel. And, That's right. And that was the thing um, that that watching that I was realizing that, and, and and yet the other thing though, the beauty of it was also I kept realizing that I was going, you know what, Jesus was we talk about god you know god being the opposite of what we think of he's not vengeful he's not the the glory the the glorious almighty zeus god and uh, just sitting there and going man he he was emmett till you know you've done it to the least of these you've done it unto me Mm -hmm. and and realizing how many times historically we have killed Jesus over and over and over again. And, uh, and, and But what makes it so tragic is realizing at the same time, many of the people confessing him from their lips. Well, you know? yes, the, the, the persecutors <laughs> uh, have been confessing Jesus from their lips since the days of Augustine, uh, the Christian persecutors. Um, I mean, this is, you know, if 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 people really wanted to kind of come into the to the uh, post 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 postmodern world, if if people really wanted to know, in ten ten fifteen twenty years, um, where is the gospel going to be? They would understand that the questions that are being raised this last twenty years um, are are going to be at the forefront of the minds of those who go through this next great crisis that the human species will face. And their questions um, will have been refined in the fires uh, of, of civilization that went into such chaos uh, and there was no interventionist God. Um, and I think I think it's it, it's in the next fifteen years that this concept of this sky god, this interventionist god, this Deus ex machina, will finally die. And when it does, then we can start talking about the death of the Janus faced god, and that 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 what makes the gospel gospel, what makes it good news. What makes any Jesus movement worth its salt is the announcement that God is light and in God there is no darkness at all, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning, that there's no dark side to God. God is not yin, yin, yin and yang. God is not God and Satan. God is, you know, if, if, if your God is more like Satan than Jesus, you've got a real problem. And the modern Christian evangelical God is really kind of a functioning Satan in the background. Right. Wow. Yeah. And, and you're right because um, I know I'm right. Of, <laughs> 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 and you're so modest. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no. It's just like it's like it's evident for anybody with eyes to see. It, it is, and and we're able to we're able to shape him into. Our image, 
you know, we 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 take that that two faced God, and 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 it's like we're able to point him the direction we want him to go, like a that's like a right. dog, if you will, like a hound dog. You know, yeah. go that way. You know that that that's the way I want you to point God. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make so, my. So we can write a song. I ain't nothing but a hound God. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so so you were talking about the two lenses that you're having to read it, the, the historical critical lens and then uh, the Word of God lens. If Was that yeah. correct? Yeah. For me, for me, um, in the context of the church, which means any gathering uh, of two or more people in Jesus' name, okay, um, I'm not going to sit and uh, open up a biblical text and uh, just announce all the historical critical work I've done on it. That, that's, that doesn't lead to anything. If I'm going to engage a biblical text, I'm going to engage it as a hearer of the gospel of God. And so the first thing that, that requires of me is humility. And I've said this before in this podcast, the primary attitude or orientation one has to have in relation to Holy Scripture in order to hear the Word of God is humility. Without that humility, there is no hearing of the Word of God. All that we end up hearing is the echo of our own voice loud enough that we think it's God's voice. You're right. We we end up just hearing our own voice if we don't go in with humility, if, especially when we weaponize the Bible. Like oh. we'll, we'll make it say what we want it to say, and we'll put we'll think it says things that it definitely doesn't say because th- that's the exact opposite of humility. You know, the Apostle Paul had a lot to say about weaponizing Scripture because that was the when, when you read the Apostle Paul, you don't think that zeal is the major problem in Paul's writings but it is, and it's this zealous interpretation of Scripture that for Paul is the problem. It's, it's the problem. Whenever you can read a biblical text, and in your zeal for religion and for God and for holiness and justice and truth and righteousness, when in that zeal you can use a biblical text to justify hurting someone, you are misreading the text. That is Paul's hermeneutic issue. I tried to lay that out in my um, lectures in Galatians that I did on YouTube. That's interesting because, I mean, that's the world Paul came from. I mean, it, it, to that's me, that, right. that, that speaks such a, a transformed life right there. I, I think on a level that, that we often just don't even grasp, that, that this man who was very much in that world of, of weaponizing Scripture and using it to justify violence and, and hurting others, and, and that he ends up being the very one who's standing against that whole line of thinking. That's right. I want to go back, and uh, if I can, and pick up on a, a couple of things Michael said earlier. Uh, the the first one, just the different uh, genre of um, scripture, um, the Torah, the prophets, the uh, Psalms. Um, I remember I remember clearly in the sixties uh, and seventies when um, the Bible as literature was being taught in universities, and I I remember the uh, angst 
the evangelical church had against that. They're just reducing it to a literary work like Shakespeare or like, you know, this or that, the other thing. And much later, coming to understand that far from that attacking scripture, uh, you know, it's, it's just a literary work, it's not inspired, it's not, it actually uh, enhances our understanding of the inspiration of scripture. When we understand where it's coming from, how what the setting of that is, and 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 I think I find it I find it a beautiful thing, uh, Michael. You you talked about uh, on the road to Emmaus how Jesus broke down Scripture and beginning with Moses and then the prophets. He actually and 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 I like the way you said it because. It wasn't that he just went through, okay, let me show you in Genesis where it talks about me. Now let's go to Exodus. Now, you know, and eventually they get to Malachi. It's, it's like he actually went through and he, and he broke it down. And, and I, I find that a, a really a beautiful thing to, um, and, and so I don't think, I, I, I don't think it's something that we have to look at and say, okay, well, you know, there's this one group over here. They think it's just literature. Then there's this other group over here. I think there's a, there's a place where we're coming together and marrying uh, those approaches to Scripture. And, and in the marrying of that, we're coming to a deeper understanding of Scripture. Actually, actually I think we're beginning to find uh, the inspiration that's in Scripture and the beauty of it. I think the I think the poeticness of uh, Psalms, I I think I, you know it's beautiful when when you think about it. The other thing is, that, Michael, you were talking about the next generation or the next twenty years or whatever, and I I think that's why podcasts like ours, others that I listen to and you're familiar with, books that uh, I've read recently, that kind of challenge this generation to ask questions and in particular to learn how to ask the right questions is is so important you know it's almost like if we don't ask questions we're just going to keep duplicating the same mistakes and wondering why uh, nothing really changes but I think it's in the and I, and I do know that there's a lot of uh, evangelicals that are afraid of that word deconstruction or, or whatever. And, and I know that there are people that are making mistakes in that. I get that. But um, having said that, having said that, I, I believe that um, the right set of questions... Uh, is so important for shaping future generations. That's really all I wanted to say, but I just think it's um, I think it's so important that we that we un- that we understand that questioning is not doubt. It's not fear. It's not unbelief. All these things that it kind of gets labeled. It actually is a way of asking, and and I think looking at scripture from a literary viewpoint, the way that you're talking about, Michael, is part of that questioning, and I think it's a good thing. Well, thank you. 
I, I you know, <clears throat> the thing with our liberal friends, and it's very sad, um, but they're, the only thing they can do when they come to Scripture is to approach it like a Boltmanian, and which means I'm going to uh, come to the Bible and whatever I think can't possibly happen or be supernatural, all that I throw out the window, and I'm just kind of looking for these morals and values that I find there. <clears throat> there I mean, at that point, they're really, really no different than the conservative Christian uh, who seems to be able to find all these rather strange uh, values of theirs mm -hmm. in the Bible. But um, our liberal friends, uh, very, very sadly, uh, have lost the ability to hear God in the text, so that it is God that is speaking and not us in a loud voice about ourselves, but it is really God that is speaking. Um, in, in that very Bartian sense, I guess, where we still can uh, recognize within Scripture that there is an authentic witness to the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit throughout the entire history of the tradition, from Genesis to Revelation. The entire history of it is now gathered together and summed up in this. And again, you know, Jim, we're here we are 50-something years past the Jesus movement. Um, the Jesus movement never gave us this kind of hermeneutic approach. It, it didn't. But I think what it did do was produce people like you and me that decided to become fearless and ask the big question and, and to, to really do it uh, knowing we could get in a lot of trouble for this, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but but to do that, um, my hope is that those of us that came out of that movement that are doing this, that are discussing and dialoguing together and uh, f uh, looking at how to frame these topics and discussions together, that the next generation that will be listening to these podcasts will gain from us enough insight to build a foundation for their world so that the Spirit can again speak through the Scriptures to the church or the synagogue, uh, like she's always done. And I say to the synagogue because I don't separate Judaism and the work of the Spirit uh, from that uh, of Christianity. Yeah, I still that's good. Jesus that's very, really good. Very much... Uh, beloved yeah. of the Father. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm and, not a Zionist, you know, by any stretch, but... Well, and, and when you talk about what the liberals have lost, and then, uh, the, and then Jim, you mentioned questioning. Um, the thing, and, and also this is kind of speaking from my own past experience, but I, I've, the thing that I've seen that I think the evangelical and uh, many evangelicals and many charismatics, Pentecostal uh, fear, which is kind of an unspoken thing, is they fear the Bible or God becoming ordinary. Um, that there, There's a terrifying thing of when you, I'm trying to find the words to put it, when you break down scripture and suddenly it becomes, I don't want to say common, but that, that it loses, here it is, it loses its magic. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like you you've got this kind of magical view of God and 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 
I know that makes a lot of people shudder, but I, I've seen that. And Lily and I have even coined a term where we call it magical thinking, where it's like, you know, um, God does all these magical things and, and comes through for me all the time. And, and then, but when you approach the scripture and it strips that away from the father, it, it becomes a very unsettling thing. Um, because now God's, Jesus really was incarnate. He really was in a very earthy world. And there's not this, like you, you say, the, the Superman Jesus waiting at the gates to come rescue me. And then there's not this happy, clappy, perfect church that that you have. So the mythology begins to unravel. The mythology and the, the way the Greeks used it. Um, it begins to unravel, and and now all of a sudden, I'm having to rethink a lot of things, and and if I'm having to do that, we we find, we take comfort. We would much rather um, continue with our delusions than have to look at things differently, and uh, and and especially if if you if your faith is in something other than Jesus Christ and in the Father. That becomes extremely rattling if your if your faith is in, in 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 the Bible instead of the the Trinity that is pointing to. Well, I I think um, as, as you're talking, I'm 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 reflecting on uh, my own journey for the last twenty five years. When I first began to allow myself to ask questions, and I have to say it that way, having grown up in a uh, Christian home. Uh, my parents were both ministers. Uh, becoming a minister myself, um, asking questions was not permissible. Uh, and 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 when I began to give myself permission to ask questions, and and then begin to c- uh, contemplate, am I asking the right questions? And and, and so going deeper. I went through an incredible emotional turmoil, sometimes thinking I might be going insane, Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes thinking I had backslidden, uh, uh, sometimes thinking uh, I was being deceived. Uh, You you know, I was was, uh, walking in deception, uh, whatever. And coming out I don't know that I've come out on the other end yet <laughs> I think I'm still asking questions and and it, honestly every time we do one of these podcasts I sit back and and just soak in things that Michael is saying uh, because sometimes he answers questions and other times uh, Michael says something that brings up another whole set of questions and I'm like okay, I need to spend some time researching that one, and uh, that might be just how I'm wired. I like I like to I have all my life um, when something comes up in my mind, I'll I'll go buy every book I can find on that subject just to <laughs> research it. I like doing that, uh, but but nonetheless, I think for our our listeners, I I would I would share with you my own life uh, for the purpose of saying. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to why is why is 
Paul saying it this way and Luke is saying it this way or Luke is saying it this way and Matthew or Mark is saying it this way and and then go deeper than that even and um uh I think I have hope for the next generation I really do um yeah, me too uh, be, because I I think the church world if if you will has kind of run its course and people are saying hey this just go along with the program just listen to the preacher up front and believe everything he tells you to believe i think people are saying you know that's not working for me anymore and um you know i know people can get deceived but i don't i don't think as many people uh, get deceived as as people want to believe you know <laughs> it's like i don't <laughs> so that's that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I agree with you, Jim. I think uh, I, I have tremendous hope for the coming generation because when you see they they already are asking those tough questions, and they're and they're not buying the um, the bill of goods that that we were sold, um, and, and they're. And I'm watching, I'm just watching even in my own daughter, you know, who's 27 in the, in the circles of friends she has. Um, she has friends that, that the church is outcast mm-hmm. and they're praying. They're, they're talking yes. to Jesus. They're, yes. they're, um, they, they have a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just completely outside of the whole, that whole universe that has said, you know, you got to get all cleaned up and be this way and that way and, you know, to be acceptable. And, and some of it's not even clean up. I shouldn't even use those terms. It's you got to, you got to fit our mold, you know, or you're, or, or you're not in. And, and so they thought they were outcasts. And then the whole thing for Michaela is no, Jesus is here for you too. But right away she, she pulls back. I even hesitate to say the curtain she pulls back on uh, that, that has made them open. Okay. I'll, t- I'll say one of them. One of them, she right away dismantles the whole thing of hell mm-hmm. and, and they immediately go, okay, now I want to hear more about Jesus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she's got this whole circle of friends that, and I mean, friends that, that she hangs out with that, that trans gay, um, that, they're praying. They're, they pray for our family. <laughs> they've had situations we've hit. They've prayed for us, and um, and they. But what opened them all up was right away the questions you're talking about, Jim. They they right away were like, okay, these are the things that keep us outside because we can't get past this. And and when you're able to come and dismantle those things, um, because because of asking the right questions not because you're just like i'm dismantling something for the sake of dismantling something but you've asked the right questions and you've if father has led you into the right answers that you're able to go okay i'm i can remove this and it's amazing how many people are at those gates that are just like they're hungry but they can't come in because those very things are deal breakers for them because the big question that, you know, we always made jokes in high school about this one, and yet it's so accurate, is how can a God of love X, Y, Z? And basically, Michaela, through those things, how can a God of love cast someone into hell forever? And she's like, he doesn't. Huh? <laughs> it's like, it just, it, it just, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, now wait a minute. So you really do believe in a God of love. And then they become very open. 
And uh, and so that's why I have hope for the next generation because, for one thing, you're you're not finding the people who are hungry and growing in Jesus in the places where you think you would, which that shouldn't be a shock to us because that's where Jesus found them in all the weirdest places that didn't weren't in their their cultural norms most of the time, and then um, and then you see that there there really is a hunger and you see that there is a an openness to him that's unbelievable it's a it's a a, a sweetness is the only way i can describe it it's it's like there's a um it's kind of like when the hippies came you know there was a sweetness about them mm-hmm. you know yep. and and it's the yep. same thing i'm seeing with with this younger generation there there's it's just like this sweet innocence that's that's just hungry for him yeah. and you remove those obstacles and because that's the thing we what did jesus say to the pharisees you know about that that you you keep them out you know and yeah, and that's what traditions. i found is yeah exactly and it's no different than like in in the jesus people movement is our traditions lock them out and yeah. and we deny them the kingdom of god and and then but when you when you come and you, and, and you recognize see them through his eyes for who they are, it's like there's this incredibly beautiful, sweet generation out there, but our religiosity hides them from us. Yeah, they will uh, unfortunately go through the first part of their uh, adulthood as parents uh, without having heard any good news, or, or they might get lucky. I mean, they might get lucky, but but uh, there is we're still a good decade off from this message that um, that really, I think, bears witness to the gospel in a way the gospel has not been borne witness to in virtually millennia. And I say that with a certain amount of swagger, and I also say it with a certain amount of humility. But I think we are now on the verge of those questions that we were asking so, so long ago uh, that led us to God's spell, that led us to Jesus Christ Superstar, that led us, that essentially t- turned us really uh, into the yuppies that became the, the friggin' new evangelicals. We're going to get back to those questions. And so in that sense, our grandchildren are going to be asking the questions that we should have continued asking but failed to right. do so. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, and I think I think that's the legacy, uh, you know, as as you know, me and Michael right on my heels, but Lauren a few years behind us. But uh, you know, in our in our latter years, that's the legacy that we have to pass on to the next two two generations. Yeah, uh, our children and our grandchildren's generation, and and for some of us. Uh, I potentially could be a great-grandfather. My oldest granddaughter's married, been married for a couple of years. And, you know, to start thinking generationally, to pass that on, uh, that's our legacy. It isn't isn't to now uh, get in the pulpit and teach a better stream of messages. It really is to pass on um, how to ask questions, how to examine, yeah. how to look into these things, and yeah. and come up with 
answers. Uh, you know, I'm going to use a, a charismatic <laughs> uh, Pentecostal thing, but to come up with answers that come from heaven itself, not just man's reasoning or the evangelical mainstream teaching or whatever. But, uh, but they really are the inspired word to a generation. And, and I, I, I believe I believe generationally. I, I really do. I believe uh, many of the things that we're uh, sharing here are things that our generation has discovered, but we've discovered it by looking at past generations and the things that they wrestled with and the conclusions they came up with. And some of them we look at and say, no, that's not quite right. And others we say, man, that's, that's right on. And uh, the insane thing is that there's so many people that just say, oh, no, 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 that's not, no, I was taught this, you know, and, and that can't be right because I was told this. And, and so I think when we think generationally, we look back and see what people have wrestled with, what we're wrestling with, and then pass on to the next generation I have hope for the next generation, let's put it that way. I have hope for the next two to three generations, really. As Karl Barth noted, real Christian theology is always um, pilgrimage mm -hmm. theology. It's a theology on the way. It's a theology of journey. It's it, The Latin term is theologia viatorum. And um, I don't know if you were aware of it, Lauren, but there was a moment there when Jim was talking, when he was striking all the same notes that the very early Karl Barth was striking. And I I just wanted to start footnoting everything Jim said at that point. Oh, that's Karl Barth. That's the strange new world within the Bible. Oh, that's Karl Barth. That's the Tambach lecture. Oh, that's Karl Barth. <laughs> That's funny. That's the, a... reason, the reason it's important to me is because there is a resonance of the work that the Holy Spirit does down through human history. Mm -hmm. And a big part of where I've always contended we need to go uh, is that we need to go through the school of Karl Barth. And we've not done that in America. And we're still very pre-Barthian in that sense in America. Can you, um, in just uh, we just have a few minutes left. In just a nutshell, can you explain what what that what you mean by that? It means that we have not yet come to grips with the fact that when we come to Scripture, we want to be the ones that ask all the questions of Scripture: why this, why this, why that, why that. When in fact, when we come to Scripture, it's God that says to us, "I am the Lord your God. Who are you?" And that we are encountered when we come to the biblical text with the Holy Spirit in the light of the work of the gospel of God in Christ. When we come to the text that way, we are those who are confronted with God. It is God who questions us, not we who question God. <laughs> and I like at that. that point, we have become those who are truly listeners and disciples. I like that, and, and I especially like that it's so in line with who Jesus revealed the Father is, because it's like you, when you see Jesus 
almost all the time he's asking questions, not giving answers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And those questions were meant to draw out of, you know, like you said, who are you? You know, draws draws us out. I, I like that. It's really good, you guys. Um, well, that that's we're actually about at time again, but we're going to uh, continue on talking uh, next time. Uh, thank you all for listening in, and uh, folks uh, who want to get a hold of some of your materials, um, uh, Jim, uh, where can people find your book? Uh, unfortunately, it's still it's still not published. I don't know what the holdup is. I've been in, in touch with the publisher. And they said everything's ready to go to print. Um, so I'm hoping within the next couple of weeks, as a matter of fact, maybe before or by the time this one drops, uh, it should be available on Amazon. But I'll let you know as soon as it is. Jim, did you really write a book? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I've read it. I've read oh, it. He God. really did. I've read it. I am a witness. I read it. I'm a witness. He really did write a book, and it's good. <laughs> just just pulling his leg there. And uh, Michael, where can people find your stuff? At my house. <laughs> At your house. <laughs> So just drive on out to Pennsylvania. You know, know, my work is, uh, my books are available on Amazon.com. I have plenty of scholarly journal articles out there, hither and yon and all kinds of places. And I have uh, hundreds and hundreds of videos on YouTube. You can look under Michael Hardner, Preaching Peace, and they're all cures for insomnia. All right. I, your your stuff has not put me to sleep. I've I, 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 if I when I fell asleep, I was already tired. <laughs> so, all right, thanks you guys, and thanks everyone once again. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next time.